Uh, Keith Davids and colleagues uh, are doing some research right now on parkour, uh, or excuse me, on what's called donor sports. And donor sports are essentially sports that can have carryover or certain aspects of them can have carryover to other sports. And by no means am I saying that I think this is the only thing that can be used or it's the maybe the gold standard, but parkour is considered a donor sport for a lot of field-based sports. So even though that hmm. whatever the object is may not be moving necessarily, it's my ability to be able to navigate around that in, in various and adaptable ways. And so essentially providing an environment, uh, you know, whether it is in the weight room or even just in the warm-up setting can allow for that person, as Michael spoke to earlier, opening up degrees of freedom. There's a sliding scale. There's times we're going to have low variability. Maybe our low amplitude hop series, we're trying to you know, really get a lot of tissue resiliency and a lot of repetitions. Those might have low variability. But you just take some traditional, I think, plyometric movements or activities such as depth jumps or hurdle hops. So let's say hurdle hops. I'm sure most coaches use some sort of you know hurdle hop in their program or the plyometric training. It's simple things as we'll, we'll vary the distance in the spacing of the hurdles. So now over each hurdle, the athlete has to organize where the next hurdle is, coordinate their, their body and their movements to get over that hurdle with the various distances, vary the height. So one could be a couple low hurdles, a high hurdle. So those are easy things you can do and say hurdle hops to, again, make the system actually organize and adapt to the constraints that you're putting within that activity. That was Tyler Yerby and Michael Zwiefel. I'm Joel Smith, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here today. We are on episode 181 and have an awesome show for you guys. So about our two guests, uh, Michael Zwiefel's been on the show a bunch of times. I think recently um, recently was on with Jeff Moyer and Jay DeMeo, and has also been on two other times speaking on uh, work in the perception, reaction space, reactive agility, and change the direction that transfers to the game. Michael is the owner of Building Better Athletes Performance in Dubuque, Iowa. Tyler Yearby is a former strength and conditioning coach at Northeastern State University, as well as the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. He's delivered over 200 domestic and international continuing education courses, workshops, and conference presentations, and has done so in 12 countries. Tyler has and continues to work with athletes, ranging from youth to professional. Tyler and Michael also are both part of a new movement skill education company called Emergence. When it comes to building athletes in terms of the agility and change of direction space, we've spent a lot of time on this show discussing that, not only because of the importance of teaching athletes to become better decision makers and, uh, and doing work that is more transferable to the game itself, but a lot of these ideas and concepts are really a microcosm of something greater, which is an athlete-centered learning approach. So for today's show, I know we've done a lot of stuff on change of direction, speed, and agility in this department. And today, Tyler and Michael are going to take us into their take on using reactivity and creative movement in the weight room. So the weight room, plyometrics, everything that we're doing in the gym to prepare athletes. And not only using this work to build better weight room movement, but also to foster creativity and just use whatever work is being done in the gym, again, as a microcosm of something greater of an athlete-centered, uh, athlete-learning-based approach. So within the show today, we're going to get into the idea of repetition without repetition, how Tyler and Michael are using that in the weight room, what a typical session might be, and how it might change based off the needs of an athlete or an athlete's state on the day. Uh, what athlete-centered training and coaching looks like, how ideas on variability affect plyometric training, so barbell and then plyometric training, and much more. This was a really fun show, a really practical and useful show. And if you're just listening to this as well, some of the videos and the examples of what Michael and Tyler are talking about can be found in the show notes on JustFlySports.com. So be sure to check that out for some of the quotes from the show and then those videos. All right, let's get on to the show. So, fellas, um, one thing I hear a lot in the, the movement space, I've heard Sean Mishka mention this a ton of times, is the idea of repetition without repetition. <laughs> so, could you guys give a, a little background of, uh, first, what, what that means for motor learning and athletics, and then how does it manifest itself in training, specifically uh, for the first part of the show, the weight room? So, repetition without repetition, and then what does it mean in the weight room? Sure, you know there's there's a there's a lot of stuff that uh, that Nikolai Bernstein has spoken to with this, and he's obviously one that coined the term repetition without repetition. Uh, but without reading you his his paragraph, one that I actually don't have memorized and don't uh, you know don't want to bore the listeners if they're not they're not interested or, or not curious about it. But uh, the 
essentially what he spoke to is it's not the means for solving a given motor, motor problem, but the process of that solution. So essentially it's the changing and the improving uh, from rep to rep and the means of that. So everything essentially slightly changes as we perform any type of motor action, whether that be in the weight room or whether that be on the field. And so whenever we extend that to either or really even human learning in general, because um, as a scientist and a neurophysiologist uh, with Burnside, he didn't just look at sport behavior. Rather, he looked at human behavior and has done a lot of research kind of covering that entire bandwidth. And so, you know, you're looking at not the means of solving that particular motor problem, but like I said, the, the process of that solution and then essentially the changing and the, the improving um, of that particular process and of that means. So what, one thing that I, I'd like to get to as well, um, and well, Michael, before I say that, Michael, do you have anything to pitch in on that one? Um, just a little bit, but yeah, you know, what we, we're, we're at here is that we just view sport as a kind of problem solving activity and, and athletes use their movements to solve the necessary problems. In the same token, that doesn't just, you know, restrict itself to on-field movement, but also in the weight room. And we view the weight room as complementary or assistive to this problem solving activity. And so when we go to the weight room, I think you can also have kind of a repetition without repetition scheme in terms of letting our athletes not repeat a singular movement over and over again, rather, uh, you know, letting them explore, create, um, and, you know, have exposure to a multitude of different positions, angles, tempos, depths, et cetera. So for us, for Tyler and I uh, at Emergence, we, we also view that we understand that repetition without repetition, repetition doesn't just live on the field. But we can also bring many of those concepts into the weight room, which is kind of uh, probably falls in the face of a traditional strength conditioning uh, template, if you would. Yeah, so that's that's something I'm looking forward to getting into because I think um, the epitome of probably the repetition without repetition or a chaotic environment or everything being a little different is most people would think of what happens in on-field play. No two plays are going to be exactly the same. There's always going to be slightly different um, reactions and stimuli and things like that. But when we're, when we're in a, a closed chain environment, so when, when degrees of freedom start to close down a little bit, and now it's just a barbell, uh, I think the thought will be, oh, well, maybe it's a little different. But I think it's, I don't know if it was Bernstein who had this illustration. I know, I'm pretty sure Sean is, has drawn it out, but like the idea of just a blacksmith hitting an anvil, like that's pretty simple. There's not, it's, there's, there is a lot of rotation involved and it's not, you don't have a bar on your back, but that skilled blacksmith has just a subtly different swing every single time. And I imagine if that blacksmith had the same exact swing every single time, there's going to be tendons and ligaments and joints that get way overworked. And then the, as well as you don't have as much, quite of a robust swing pattern. So I imagine that that principle could uh, lend itself to uh, things that we see in the weight room. Um, obviously, I, the, something that's always come to my mind is things like plyometrics and bounding and different, and even like the parkour, um, the parkour type principles that Rafe Kelly talked about a few podcasts ago. But when it comes to the barbell itself, could you guys tell me a little bit about what you're doing in terms of adding variability into the system versus a totally blocked situation? Yeah, so there's a Michael just kind of uh, touched briefly on a couple of different ones, and and uh, by the way, absolutely that that was Bernstein as far as the the uh, the hammer and the the anvil there, the the uh, very you know well known picture where that slight variance in the pattern. So essentially, the 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 uh, way in which he was interacting with the environment was slightly different, and the path that he was moving along was slightly different whereas the outcome was actually relatively low. So high movement variability, but low outcome variability. And that's the whole idea of essentially becoming attuned, uh, whether it be in the weight room or on the field, but specifically to the field, to answer your question, uh, excuse me, to the weight room, to answer your question, uh, there's a variety of different things that, that we actually use, um, some of us which are tempos, like Michael had spoken to. So whether, uh, rather than looking at it from the perspective of uh, for two weeks, I'm going to do one particular emphasis, whether it be an isometric or uh, starting with uh, an isometric and then moving into concentric emphasis, um, actually having that live and breathe from rep to rep, or if it's something that the coach isn't comfortable with having an athlete do based off of their uh, level of learning or their level of maturation in the, in the training setting or the training environment, maybe it's set to set. 
um, within the same setting itself or within the same session itself. So one which being tempo, uh, the other being stance. So there's a variety of different, obviously, stances. Even if you just take something as traditional as a bent row, you know, you can have a, a slightly staggered stance. You can have a wider stance, a narrower stance. Essentially, you have different forces that are acting on the body. You have um, higher amounts of tissue resiliency just because of the the uh, way in which you're having to handle or dampen impact forces. Um, and there's a variety of other ones, but grips, uh, foot placement changes, like I mentioned, the implement that you're holding, uh, taking implements such as kettlebells that have an extended center of mass that's constrained to rotate around an axis. So inherently, there's, there's variability within each different movement itself. Um, so those are just a few of the ways that we kind of extend these ideas to the weight room. Um, you know, and Michael can certainly add to a few of those. Yeah, just kind of building off that, it, you know, the, the, the strength conditioning world is a little bit strange because in one breath, you could have a strength coach say, hey, we're going to do a 12 by 2 back squats at 90% of a one rep max. And one might ask, well, geez, isn't that a lot of volume at such a high intensity? And the strength coach will respond with, well, the body will adapt. That stress makes the body stronger, you know. Um, athletes need, need to be able to express force under fatigue. But in the next breath, you could demonstrate something as a, a squat or reverse lunge or any kind of weight or movement where every single rep is different, where an athlete might purposely be going in the valgus or might be changing their stance or might be doing things that may, might seem unconventional. And they'll, and they'll say, why would you do that? You can't be doing that. But won't the body adapt? Doesn't this stress make them stronger in those positions? You know, isn't it needed? Our athletes need to be able to express force despite those compromised positions that they find themselves in the field. And so that's kind of what we, we kind of view the weight room as, as a complement, again, to our on-field or what's happening on the field for the athletes. So rather than, hey, you gotta, we got we to gotta, uh, target this muscular adaptation, we want to target some sort of behavioral adaptation, creativity, exploration, adaptation, uh, ad adaptability. So it's much more than just a muscular, neuromuscular adaptation that we're after in the weight room. There can be a number of different things that we can target learning, uh, learning uh, other things that we want for athletes to gain in the weight room that then will transfer transfer to the field. Yeah, I think along the lines of the mechanisms too, I think I had heard of, I, well, I was watching some of your videos on social media and seeing like the different, and I think everyone's, a lot of people are very familiar with triphasic training or the two-week blocks, like let's go two weeks of a six-second eccentric and then two weeks of a four-second hold and and two weeks of, and so on down the line. So essentially, you guys are saying that every single, potentially every workout or within even every set, like one one set might be uh, six seconds down, fast up, and then the next rep might be something else, and the next rep might be something else. So that would be, would that be like the primary way? Or then, or you also you're saying like you could switch your stance a little bit each set. You could do a, you could, I think I saw Christian Thibodeau uh, say something once about you could start with like a narrow stance squat and do a rep and then every rep you could shuffle your feet out like an inch or something like that just to fundamentally change it so those are two primary ways then like a different tempo every rep or a different stance every rep or how how does that kind of shake out uh, are you are you doing it really every set or is it a daily is it does it depend on the athlete i don't want to get too far into the nitty-gritty details but if you guys could maybe break that down just a little bit for me yeah no absolutely well, I guess a good place to start and probably where our point of departure should have been would be kind of viewing this from rather rather than it being a linear progression way with like a capital P where you have to hit one before you hit two, before you hit three. Uh, the way that we view learning specifically at Emergence, but how I viewed it, you know, really even before the creation of the company is as a nonlinear pedagogical way uh, to coaching. So essentially like taking a learner centered approach and that learner centered approach doesn't mean that you just let the athlete do whatever they want. That's, that's not the point. It's more that the learner centered approach to skill acquisition is, is an umbrella term for, for using task and environment design. And the task can be, you know, it can be anything from the rules to the equipment, to the boundaries. Um, it can be the, the way in which that the, the athlete is being asked to accomplish um, any set goal. And, and that is going to be coupled with the individual, the organism themselves, which, you know, they have physical constraints, uh, being their height, their weight, their muscle to fat ratio, uh, their genetic makeup, uh, their anthropometric features. And then it's obviously going to be where that, that task is being, um, asked to be taken care of or be done. And so that can be the environment, obviously being both physical and sociocultural. So essentially where that, that movement is being asked, um, and then essentially who that individual is at that time. Um, what is the light like? What is the humidity like? So, you know, with the nonlinear pedagogical approach, it's using that task and environment design to help 
develop quote unquote skill acquisition or maybe even skill adaptation because the whole idea of having adaptability is being able to essentially be attuned to whatever it is that you are undertaking in your environment, the information that is present. So uh, to go back to your, your example, you know, as far as the, the actual set itself or, you know, with the triphasic example through Cal and, and Ben Peterson that you were, that you were speaking to, um, you know, with that, not saying that that certainly can't be used, but the way we look at it is we take and we appreciate the individual. So if we look at the actual weight room itself, uh, we want to appreciate who they are at that moment in time. So we, we want to have a decent background of them. And then not only a decent background of them, it's not we have program A set to, um, to, set to go, and that's what we're going to do today regardless. Uh, rather, we actually have uh, questionnaires. You know, what is the readiness level for that day? What, are the, what is their mood like? What is their satiation level or nutrition like that day? What was their sleep like that day? And these may seem like things that would take a while, but they're really pretty easy and then what we do is we correlate that to a color scheme. And so it might be a green, yellow, red, and that's going to be uh, based off the total volume. I won't go into the, to the weeds on that unless you want to, but the total volume that they're going to uh, take, you know, take on. And with that, um, we use an exploration key. So Michael just spoke to the example of like the king of, of weight room movements that you, know, you had spoke to it as well as far as the back squat. Now, if you've got a younger learner and they've got a heavier load on the bar, we're not going to want a large amount of variability there because there's certainly KPIs or key performance indicators. They're going to enhance performance as well as uh, reduce the likelihood of injury. However, if the weight is lower or maybe we're doing crawling, maybe we're doing gymnastic type movements, or maybe we're doing a dumbbell reverse lunge, uh, we encourage the athlete to explore. We want them to have that tissue resiliency. We want them to be able to co-contract and stabilize different joints in different ways. Maybe it's ways they actually might uh, you know, find themselves in novel positions on the field. So uh, without continuing to go on and on and on, essentially providing an opportunity for that athlete to have a little bit of autonomy in situations where maybe they've been with you for a little bit longer, but not necessarily having it to progress from step one to step two to step three. Rather, it might be step one to step four to step two to step seven, so on and so forth. Yeah, and as Tyler kind of mentioned there, we're, we're no way saying that there isn't times and places to – to load up a lift heavier and then reduce the variability for our athletes. We're not asking them to put 95% of their max on and try to put themselves in very unique or novel positions. That's not the case. Rather saying that, you know, for strength coaches, let's step outside of this, this means of we got to improve weight room performance. And then instead of view weight room as again, a complement to what will actually help them perform on the field. And for me personally, and what I've seen with my athletes, I'll, I'll gladly take, a 10, 20% reduction in, a, in like a compound lift, say a back, back squat or hex bar deadlift, which we already know has limited transfer and correlation to any on-field metric to have like this repetition without repetition scheme. I'd put up the results of health, movement quality, athlete robustness, and resilience uh, of an off-season spent on variability of movement over strength. And for my athletes personally, they've given me a ton of feedback uh, that me allowing them to explore in the weight room to be creative and to own the, their own movements in the weight room, um, have given them the confidence to do the same thing out in the field. Uh, so when before, maybe in the weight room or in their past settings, uh, you know, in the weight room and in the field, they felt like they had to do a certain technique or they had to hit a certain position or certain stance. Um, now they communicate with me that since I'm not overly explicit in the weight room, that they feel a lot more comfortable being uncomfortable and trying new things and owning their feedback. And this has transferred to them on the field. So for me, you know, the transfer is not only in these strength adaptations, but rather these behavioral, uh, creative and adaptability adaptations uh, for athletes taken onto the field. So we have to look, like I said, look outside of muscular adaptations and look into movement behavioral adaptations and transfer. Yeah, I, th I feel like there's so many benefits to this mentality of things. And I actually, as you, were t you guys were talking, I was drawing out a little list of some things that I wanted to ask you. But before I get into that, I think... Uh, and Tyler, you mentioned it a little bit and Michael as well. Like, it's not like you're going to take an athlete with a very significant load. Like you got 95% of your one RM on your shoulders or your back and you're going to be moving your knees in different like random positions. Uh, <laughs> that's not the time or the place for that. But I wanted the lighter loads and I love the idea. I've always really, truly loved the idea of doing more with less weight. I feel like that just gets closer to the heart of sport. But in terms of sequencing, like let's just say it's you know early off season to preseason to in season, 
Is there any sort of block ideas, training block ideas in, in the terms of potentially doing a block of a traditional tempo sequence where there's less variability and then moving into more variability? Or are you guys just, does it just totally depend on the athlete? Would you guys, a more experienced athlete, just do variability all year round? Uh, how, how would you, let's just say, I, it's hard to, for the sake of a show, say, you know, average Joe athlete. But if average Joe athlete existed, average train, you know, a couple years of training experience, moderate strength, still probably needs to get stronger. Like, is there is there a certain potential sequence that you guys are going to take this athlete through if you have them for, say, three months before their season starts? You know, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. And, and like you were kind of pointing to, it's, it's, it is kind of hard to answer, but I will say, you know, you mentioned it being specific to the athlete and it is just that. Now I will say, um, you know, it's not like it can't be done in larger settings. It's more that you are appreciating who they are at that time. And whenever I was speaking to having some type of guide where you find out who they are on that day and maybe where they are in their learning, uh, their learning environments. And, and we look at it as a learning system. So it's essentially, you know, Dominic uh, Orth and colleagues speak to a learning system. And that learning system is the athlete or athletes and the coach. So it's not like, like I mentioned earlier, it's just what I want to do that day or what Michael wants to do or whoever it may be. And this is the time of year and this is what we're going to do. Um, rather, we're going to take appreciation of who they are. So you spoke to like maybe a more advanced athlete. Certainly, you know, I have, I have a handful of professional guys. And if we're nearing them going back to camp, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to um, have a certain way that I linearly progress from, you know, like I used to, quite frankly, where I progress from maybe a hypertrophy type model, and then I move into a strength speed and into a speed strength and the load gets lighter and so on and so forth, um, you know, for, for a handful of reasons. Rather with them, I certainly will have that, that variable type approach uh, with, with respect to what we're doing, obviously, like I spoke to. Um, and then with that being said, I'm not hesitant to let them hit some higher numbers. Now we're not maxing out. That's actually, I don't, I don't max out in general anymore. Uh, but, uh, that's something that I would do now. If it's something where we are earlier in the off season, yeah, I might have a handful of days where I have more of a, uh, hypertrophy type day or two or three in a row, but I still will take that variable type approach. And it could even be with what type of implement is being pushed or pulled, you know, from rep, from, from set to set. So if they have a lower body press. And it's, you know, maybe it's a pit shark if I have access to it, or it's a rear fill elevated, you know, lunge or Bulgarian type squad versus it being, I have, like Michael mentioned earlier, I have five sets of five on back squat specifically. Um, And, you know, it's one of those things where with us, we're trying to facilitate the process of self-organization as pedagogists in general, pedagogists in general. And so we extend that, that process of self-organization is not just to stand back, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Rather, we're still there as the coach present in the setting. We're just trying to provide these opportunities rather than providing these major restrictions. And sometimes the restrictions can come in the form of uh, constraining them too much and making them do certain things. Yeah, to, to just to build off that, <clears throat> yeah, it obviously depends on your setting, you know, private versus public sector with the team versus, you know, individuals, like I said, in the private sector. sector. But one way that for me that early for my team settings, for if there's strength conditioning coaches from a team setting listening, that we do when I get my athletes first thing in the off season is we'll just have our warmups. I'll do three warm-up sets and all those will be a rep without rep fashion. And then when we get to our working sets, those will be kind, kind of your traditional. So that way I can build it into the warm-up set. So we'll have three warm-up sets, five to eight reps, again, giving them a range. I mean, that's something we also talked about, for Tyler and I, we give our athletes a lot of range of repetitions. So we give them like a, you know, four to eight reps and they can kind of cut off the set in that range. Another way to give our athletes kind of the keys to the car, if you would, ownership and autonomy over, hey, I'm going to cut the set off at five because, hey, I felt like that was a five good reps and I don't think there's much more left in the tank or you know, whatever it may be for that athlete in that setting. But for initial starting point is let your athletes have their warm-up sets be rep without rep. And again, I, I promise you there's going to be so much better movement quality. The athletes will, will open up degrees of freedom. They'll feel looser, more fluid than your standard. All right, you've got to have your feet underneath your armpits, toes exactly forward, stack your you know diaphragm over your pelvic floor. You know, you got to take a big breath. All these ridiculous cues that I think we give. And then I'll, I often think about what, what are you doing by giving these, these 20 different cues they have to set up and stack before a lift? I think that negatively influences how their thought processes occur on the field. 
Like, are they thinking, you think about 20 different things in order to, to make a tackle or shoot a basketball or return a tennis serve? So I think sometimes we're getting our athletes in paralysis by analysis and robotical in the weight room by all these, I think, I, what I, perf- I think perf- personally are redundant cues rather than letting our athletes just be athletes. And so for a starting point for many strength coaches, I think you could do this via just a warm-up. Three warm-up sets, four to eight reps. You guys explore, create, do whatever you want during those warm-up sets. I think that's a great initial starting point for many coaches. And Joel, you know, just to add a a bit to that, that was obviously an awesome ad. One of the things that we use at our facility is after we've had the athletes, and this isn't a larger team setting, and it can certainly be done in a smaller setting, but in a larger team setting, um, after we've taken the athletes through some options for a warm-up, kind of Michael speaking to giving them the opportunity to engage in their warm-up and have a little bit of autonomy, autonomy themselves, after we've taken them to through two, three, four, maybe sessions and giving them options for their warm-up, we ask them to get there early, early being minimum of 10 minutes, and get to roughly 80% of their go. 80% of their go meaning you're owning the warm-up, you have that time, and then after that, you know, we kind of finish that portion of the warm-up still with an exploratory type uh, approach to it, giving them an opportunity to move in ways they were likely going to move in in sport and at different at different speeds. And so maybe it's us guiding kind of an intention there. So it's not just kind of a, a free open bandwidth all the time. That can be very fruitful sometimes. Rather, it's, hey, I want you to kind of more of a smoother type flow here, or let's really open it up here and just seeing what type of emergent behavior occurs. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymAware, and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the gym where I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox as the readings you get out of the gym where go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room, and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra-portable and lower-price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym where the flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics. So for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. I really, I, I was nodding my head. <laughs> I wouldn't say vigorously, but but I was like kind of smiling and nodding my head as you guys were just talking there, especially with the idea of the I and I I had a post about social media post about this a little while ago. It was it was something to the tune of how I used to look at coaching being a lot more robotic and a lot more do the lift like this and XYZ and where it's really morphed into a much more free flowing um free flowing model. Uh, a very similar a lot of similarities to what you guys are talking about. I think my thing I've been using a lot more of is just a lot of more crawling and and uh like swinging from monkey bars and and rolling in the and a lot of uh, natural human movement in those senses but i've it's it's been a really rewarding process and the athletes emotionally like it more as well versus just you know oh did i do this right am i doing this like the coach wants me to versus you get to explore and move a little bit and even um it, it makes me think a little bit as well about i remember i think four years ago at a track football consortium uh listening to Stuart mcmillan talk about using uh like uh, uh, dangling uh, like kettlebells off of uh, jump stretch bands from a bar as part of the warm up, uh, which opens up a little degrees of freedom as well, and then getting into the heavier sets, and it just all makes me think about the athlete not treating the athlete as a machine where we 
supposedly know all the parts and we have it all figured out, but letting the system self-organize and giving it all these inroads to self-organize, not treating the athlete like a robot. It's very much what um, just on the last podcast I released with Helen Hall, she talked extensively about not coaching runners like that in a robotic, but, but giving them degrees of freedom, letting them explore ranges and letting them create a better technique um, of, of their own by just expanding their awareness rather than saying you must run like this. And I've, I've noticed myself that type of coaching tends to uh, offer more profound results, more natural results that lend to what an athlete can actually do than saying you must do it like this. So I, I'm seeing a lot of that from how you even from a weight room perspective and, and how you're allowing the warm up and allowing the exploration on those, those ends. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so, precisely. Uh, I, I tell my athletes all the time, and these are, these are middle school, high school kids. Just try to initiate this process. I tell them, the best, who, who's the best coach you'll ever have? They, they pause, like, like yourselves. You guys will be the best coach that you will ever have. So start that process now. And as, as coaches, we can, see, we can see the athletes move in space, but we can never feel what they feel. And so we have to you know, tap into that, that, that reservoir, if you would, and let them understand that, hey, you guys are going to be your best coach. You, no one can feel what you feel. No one can understand what you understand. So tap into that. And we try to, again, guide our athletes in terms of taking ownership of that process. That this is them, their bodies, their learning, et cetera. I just had an, a college athlete come back today from uh, obviously from winter break from college, and um, his, his back's hurting. I go, what, what, why is your back hurt? Well, we did RDLs yesterday, and I told my coaches I don't want to do RDLs. He just had a, this feeling that RDLs were going to aggravate his back. Like, if I had an athlete come to me, and I want my athletes to challenge me, I want them to come up with me with suggestions and, and say, can I change this? Do I have to do this today? And we'll have a facilitate a conversation. But why the hell would I be mad as a coach if athletes say, can I just skip RDLs today? Do you think that's really going to make a big difference in terms of the long-term process or adaptation of the athlete? No, it's not. But they had a feeling it was their decision. I'm going to help guide them and nudge them and maybe in another direction. But it's just one of those things, well, if an athlete wants to change something on my program, my, my training card, I'm not I'm not going to get disrespected from that. I'm just like, I, I love that. I love them to challenge me, to question me, to, to have their own ideas because, again, it is their process and they're the ones taking ownership over it. And so, again, nudging our athletes to understand that you guys are your own coach and, and be that in that manner. Be, be your own coach and be your best coach. You know, and it's one of those things where I've been I've been in this industry for almost 14 years now. And I'll be the first to admit for seven years straight, it had to fit into my perfect model. And everybody had to fit into my perfect model. It was like every athlete had to, every movement pattern had to. I was, I'm sure I was inundating them with information. Uh, yeah, maybe hopefully I helped them a little bit along the way too. But it's just kind of slowly over the second half of my career, giving more of that autonomy back. But not just giving it back as far as me just giving it to them, but yet it being that learning system to where you're taking in what they're actually saying. Or one thing, I'll be honest, the listeners out there that was really challenging for me still is, you know, and I have to work on it every single session is taking a rep off or two reps off and not as far as me actually perceptually being aware of what is going on. However, what I mean by that is not jumping in and going, I had a, you know, trying to add to what they could have done. And I'm not talking about just the weight room, but on the field as well. So that, that feedback is vital, but we don't want to get to the point where we dampen that own intrinsic type feedback from that system and how they're interacting in the environment that they're undertaking that task. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think I've heard it somewhere. I can't remember where or who said it, but sometimes the best cue is no cue at all. Again, just letting our athletes be able to, tie, to digest and internalize a couple reps or a couple sets without us bombarding them with cues. And this, you know, this goes back to what we spoke of, Tyler and I, many times in the past is is coaches what we can do a better job of is we can set up better environments and better tasks that give the athletes feedback via those tasks and environments rather than trying to give our athletes feedback via our words and via our communication. So spending more time trying to build environments and tasks that implicitly give feedback to the athlete rather than us explicitly trying to bombard them with cues, feedback, and communication. Uh, one one question for you guys. Well, I have a few a few thoughts. Um, I, I was kind of coming up with a list of all these things that I felt like a more variable, uh, the repetition without repetition as applied to weights could have over standard weights uh, selectively. I mean, maybe not 
for every single time. I mean, obviously there might be a few uh, or a lot of traditional sets in there, depending on the athlete and their need. But I think a lot of people tend to look at it from, uh, let's just look at like just from a raw, pure strength, pure force perspective because i think i think a lot of times people tend to look at moving movement as just esoteric um you know it's just this esoteric thing and hopefully it transfers better to sport uh, but one of the things that well i've always seen this from example uh, basketball players they and me being a basketball player in high school and a track guy and i've seen it myself where the less i played basketball or time periods where i completely stopped playing any sort of team sport any basketball um I kind of I would notice uh, my vertical would drop off even if I was getting stronger in the weight room in like squats and cleans or whatnot and doing this the very like closed variability plyometrics I it, I didn't necessarily see like a better high jump but if I open it up a little bit play some basketball play some volleyball um, it things would get and I'm not saying I I could never have high jumped as high as I could if all I did was play basketball obviously I just needed that from time to time to open things up and I've seen that in a lot of athletes. Rafe Kelly, a few podcasts ago, was talking about how parkour parkour training was so effective for him in even his own vertical jumping or the athleticism he sees out of parkour athletes. So I feel like for just like the, the highest, the most powerful, the most explosive we can be, being able to utilize our joints as well as we can, I think the, the variability, it, it has to be in there, it has to exist um, to reach a highest level. So how, I mean, uh, you've mentioned that the, the technique uh, got better. It felt cleaner. Do you feel like this method, if we were just talking wonder, and obviously when it comes to sport, wonder at max is not everything, but I think people are, it's an important, the idea of being more efficient and getting stronger is good. Do you guys feel like, um, in addition to the potential crossover into sport and having more awareness and more robustness and movement that just in terms of just purely getting stronger, that this could be an advantageous thing? Well, from a strength perspective, obviously it's going to go back to the to the individual themselves. And so, you know, when you look at what uh, Michael Turby referred to as effectivities, and effectivities are essentially the capabilities an individual has to affect the environment, the capacities they have. Now those change. Those are a dynamic process. It's not something that's, that's imprinted almost as now I have this, I didn't before, I'll always have this. Rather, it kind of it varies based off of you know the uh, the lifetime and the and the time scales of an individual. Um, with that being said, that most of the time with, with younger individuals, while they may be relatively decent movers, strength is certainly going to help their capabilities. So by no means are we saying that the weight room is not important because obviously it's a vitally important aspect. Uh, rather, it may be more of a supplementary aspect to, uh, to where skills are actually living and breathing in sport. Uh, you spoke to, to uh, you know, skills and technique, and I think actually Michael shared this on your site. I'm pretty sure it was uh, it was a movement terminology cheat sheet that we had put together, and and techniques linked to an information source, and meaning it changes. It's going to be changing based off of where the skill is being asked, and skills are contextual. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to pull out that you just mentioned, you mentioned uh, uh, parkour. Uh, Keith Davids and colleagues uh, are doing some research right now on parkour. Uh, or excuse me, on what's called donor sports. And donor sports are essentially sports that can have carryover or certain aspects of them can have carryover to other sports. And by no means am I saying that I think this is the only thing that can be used or it's the maybe the gold standard, but parkour is considered a donor sport for a lot of field-based sports. So even though that hmm. whatever the object is may not be moving necessarily, it's my ability to be able to navigate around that in, in various and adaptable ways. And so essentially providing an environment, uh, you know, whether it is in the weight room or even just in the warm-up setting can allow for that person, as Michael spoke to earlier, opening up degrees of freedom, you know, and, and then what that, that can be a positive thing. That can also be a negative thing, you know, and I don't mean by negative as far as injuring them per se, but rather now we have to coordinate and control those degrees of freedom that have now been opened up. And degrees of freedom aren't just at the biomechanical level, rather they're at the perceptual and the cognitive level as well. That's something that obviously is going to go more into the sport and, and the agility sessions themselves, uh, but also lives in the weight room. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I yeah, sorry, I, I felt like I asked maybe a somewhat <laughs> I didn't want to overcomplicate the question, but I definitely I right. like I like what you said about the perceptual as well. I, I just think that we that's something we just take for granted is the sensory and perceptual elements of all these things. I guess my thought is I was because I don't 
I I see these videos you guys are posting. I think they're they're, they're awesome. Like, yes, I want to try this stuff because I've all all I'm speaking from is I know this stuff works from a uh, just purely let's just say purely jump and sprint training or jump training particularly because there's a lot of complex movements there as in anything. But I'm like, yes, I know more degrees of freedom than closing down to less degrees of freedom. Uh, so more degrees of freedom being basketball, closing into less degrees of freedom being more traditional strength and plyometric training has always been a good thing for me. And if it's only lower degrees for too long, it just doesn't, it just can't be its best as I've seen it in many scenarios. So I'm, I was just assuming that you could say more likely than not, there's that potential for the strength world as well. If you have more and then you want to, just like you're saying in the warm up, but maybe just a more macro level potentially. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about the sports skill anyways. My my thought was just, is it a more efficient way to get there in the weight room? It's probably more fun for the athlete too in that process, like just the emotional state being, hey, let's have some fun. Let's open up some degrees. Then let's get after it a few sets and then let's go to the next thing more so. Um, so I guess I was just trying to say, I, I believe there's probably more like the not a carryover, uh, the, the jump world, the sprint world, the lift world. Um, it, it's probably just good to be reciprocal, but across all areas as well. If these are things you guys are doing in your speed, you know, agility, sometimes I don't even like to say those words, speed, agility, those two words together, kind of the SAQ type vibe. But if, if you're doing things across all bandwidths, it makes sense that you'd want to be reciprocal with the barbell as well. You know, you're, you're spot on. And, and, you know, with us, we kind of view it across the entire scale of human performance. And so, you know, our, our first course is called underpinnings, which is just that the underpinning theoretical components of that, what comprise and what's called an ecological dynamics framework, or, you know, how athletes and sport teams are looked at as, as complex adaptive systems. And if that's what we're speaking to is adaptive systems and how they interact in the task and the environment, we want to extend that to the weight room as well. And so strength does matter. Uh, plyometric work does matter. I, I will tell you, though, personally, you know, I, I certainly use plyometric work, but not as much in the sense that I used to use it whenever I was at the University of Minnesota, when I worked with Cal, when I worked with uh, the football staff there. I'm not saying that wasn't beneficial per se, but I feel like there was much more we could have done. And there's there's plyometric that can uh, work that can happen where I'm dampening those impact forces. And I believe you actually have had Emily Splickle on your podcast before, and you have it to where, you know, the small nerves in the bottom of the foot are able to perceive information. Information can come in a variety of different manners, you know, different type of surfaces vibrate differently. And so that's all information to the system. And so, you know, with that, you have a situation where if I'm dampening impact forces, uh, there's times where I want that to be uh, where it's lower variability or the term that I a lot of times will use, which is from this uh, framework is, is information scaling. And that can come in many different ways, but that might be in speeds, that might be in forces, that might be in defenders that are present, that might be in space that is there. So no, these are all things that span the spectrum. We just want to extend it into the weight room and kind of introduce it into the weight room. Uh, that's actually something that I'll be speaking about at the Sport Movement Skill Conference coming up in 2020 is introducing these concepts into the weight room. I will say in doing um, the more variable, even within the weights and the the workout, just just in my own in my own work right now, I'm doing just an easy strength work. So it's like same lifts every day, uh, Dan John template, so ten reps total. But I find myself, especially when it's lighter days, just subtly in my own mind making every set just a little bit different than the other. You know, doing cleans, catching one high, catching one low. I just my nervous system likes it like I and I think that was fed off a little bit of watching you guys' videos and things and I love it and I feel every time I've done anything like that in the past where there's a little more like I feel just better walking out of the session I feel better the next day um now not to say too if the volume's low anyways in terms of the the traditional barbell training I usually feel fine um but I just feel like I've always felt a little better just a little snappier when there's those subtle um changes that's it's more when it's more of an alive session uh the epitome of that was i I spent some time training with gary marinovich down in uh santa cruz a couple years ago and he would and i wanted to ask if you guys do this and this was mostly with just like say uh physio ball work and i think some very light machine uh, ballistic work but he would coach he would coach each rep a little differently some like he would you'd be doing reps and he'd say like reverse or uh or half rep or half range or full range so he'd be commanding you through that do you guys uh, have a, a like a prescript for some of these variable sets where or are, are there ever points where you are um, on the fly having an athlete do something different with some of these lighter loads 
Michael, definitely feel free to jump in, or I certainly certainly am happy to happy to share. Uh, I got to start for me personally. No, I don't have like a pre-script. Again, I want the, to facilitate the athlete's own exploration because that's what they're going to have to do on the field. I'm not going to be in their in their ear telling them, "Hey, this one do you know a half, or this one do a full." So for me, it's more athlete ownership and autonomy rather than me having a, a pre-script. Um, although before the set starts, I'll give them the intention and give them suggestions uh, of what to do. But again, at the end of the day, it is comes down to them owning that that set rather than me as the coach um, dictating what they do from rep to rep. Yeah. And I, I would echo that, you know, for me, I certainly don't have a, a prescription by any means. I might have kind of like a framework for a, what I want the day to look like. And this is whether it's an, a, an agility based day. Cause it's like you just mentioned a little bit earlier. I mean, the speed lives in the agility for me. It's my, I term it my field sessions. I might say my perception action work, you know, it's, it's something that's going to be, um, all inclusive versus it being separate. I don't have separate days anymore, but I also take that into the weight room. And it sounded almost like a not knowing what the setting was like that you were speaking to there. It almost sounded like a little bit of a differential learning type approach where uh, Rob Gray does a great job on his podcast talking about how what that is compared to a constraint sled approach is if you have a buffet, uh, a constraint sled approach is eating on a certain portion of the buffet. So essentially you're channeling certain options for that individual to interact with, whether it's in the weight room or specifically speaking to the field and for sport. And I say field, I mean court, sport or uh, court, rink, ice, whatever it may be. And then the differential learning is you're eating out of a different place each time it changes every time because it's something that I'm still kind of digging into myself with a differential learning approach. But the whole idea is that the environment has noise, the organism, individual performer has noise. And that you're trying to find that 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 perfect match, essentially. And that perfect match is a dynamic process because perception is a dynamic process. In terms of uh, outside of the barbell work, I, is this feeding into... So plyometrics maybe uh, is probably something there's a few more movement options on the field. Um, I've seen a lot of, uh, in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of like the 3d plyos, like different, you know, different angles and, and these types of things. How, how is this type of idea impacting some of the plyometric work that you guys are doing currently? And I know Kyle, uh, Tyler, you had mentioned the, the little bit about the plyometric work at Minnesota and then beyond. How is this impacting the plyometric and dynamic stuff that you guys are doing? I'll certainly let uh, Michael add on to this here in a second, cause I know he has some really good ads. Uh, but if I speak just to the weight room, or when I say the weight room, the weight room into the warm up type, or or com, you know whatever I'm using as a as a uh, you know let's call it a second exercise, third exercise in a in a set, because the field work is far far different. It's it's all stuff that's it's plyometric work that's occurring, but it's occurring in in respect to the skill and the sport itself. Because I'm channeling sport type snippets of of an activity. Uh, that's a that's a whole nother beautiful conversation. But as far as the the weight room itself, and and we we showcase quite a bit in our course that will be coming out near the new year. But some of it may be just providing perturbations or or resistance, um, you know, uh, to an athlete as they're in the air. And so rather than it being they're landing perfectly with their elbows bent at a perfect angle and their their hips perfectly. And, um, you know, they're, they're not letting it sink in too much. They're going to be landing differently based off of, uh, what type of, if any perturbations that were occurring from an individual. And now I will say, and we spoke to a little bit earlier, it's not like we're just getting out there with an eight year old and just hammering him, (laughs) you know, and he's, he's not knowing how to land by any means. That's where that information scaling comes in and the exploration key of variability, um, lives, but that's one way we're doing it. Uh, the other way, which uh, I think we just put something on our on our social media, I believe it was Instagram, where there's in uh, you know what you I guess you would traditionally look at altitude landings or uh, depth type jumps, where they're landing in different positions and encouraged to each time. And um, then as a coach, you could take it a step further and you could look at it from what type of positions does the athlete seem to be landing, uh, maybe uh, awkwardly in or in positions that might. Uh, limit them per, from performing or or potentially aiding the energy or injury and that's where we're obviously going to as a coach step in it's not just a free-for-all let them go but those are a couple of the ways that we've taken it into um you know into the weight room uh versus or on the you know on the uh, warm-up sessions versus it just being your traditional i'm going to do a depth jump or i'm going to do a you know a, a, a broad jump or whatever it may be but rather you know you're taking it that way and i know michael has a lot of good ads too yeah, just a few because Tyler kind of hit them pretty well. But 
there's a sliding scale. There, there's times we're going to have low variability. Maybe our low amplitude hop series, we're trying to you know, really get a lot of tissue resiliency and a lot of repetitions. Those might have low variability. But if you just take some traditional, uh, I think, plyometric movements or activities such as depth jumps or hurdle hops. So let's say hurdle hops. I'm sure most coaches use some sort of you know hurdle hop in their program or the plyometric training. It's simple things as we'll, we'll vary the distance in the spacing of the hurdles. So now over each hurdle, the athlete has to organize where the next hurdle is, coordinate their, their body and their movements to get over that hurdle with the various distances, vary the height. So one could be a couple low hurdles, a high hurdle. So those are easy things you can do and say hurdle hops to, again, make the system actually organize and adapt to the constraints that you're putting within that activity. Same thing with depth jumps. Again, encouraging our athletes to not just do a regular off a box, quick off the ground onto another box, but every rep's gonna, it has to be different. And so they can maybe go off in a 90 degree angle or a single leg, or they can rotate in the air, et cetera. I think all those things will, will again, uh, aid and build that that movement system and the, and kind of the, the move behavior of our athletes that will encourage them to be a little bit more adaptable, more creative, and allow them to kind of uh, carry over those things and transfer those things onto the court of play. I liked, um, I liked Tyler, what you said about introducing a lot of different landings and seeing where athletes could potentially falter. I just think that we live in a world where it's, okay, here's the perfect landing, like do this snap down or something and, and land in this perfect position and everything's all lined up. But that's not what's going to happen when you're actually playing your sport. <laughs> you know, you're probably going to land right. anything but that way when you're actually um, playing your sport. And so to me, it it also, I feel like this type of work would really draw out the observational abilities of the coach because now you're not just, you're really observing almost more than you're actively coaching to an ideal. You're you're giving an athlete a lot of situations and you're seeing what changes more so than just saying, well, here's what the textbook says and this this and that said you should land this way. And I, I feel like that that there is a very um, powerful way of, of learning by observation and then allowing, again, like Michael, like you said, allowing the athlete to be their best coach, learning to deal with a lot of different types of landing situations rather than just dropping from the same box every time, landing in the same position every time, doing the same thing with your arms every time, et cetera, et cetera. And it has to be a lot better in terms of everybody learning, the coach, the athlete, and the whole system. Yeah, and for me, it goes back to this this conversation of, all right, so what happens when, so, you know, maybe higher level sport when we're afraid to sprint our athletes or, or sprint at maximal velocity? What happens the first time they, they get exposed to that in the game? What do you think is going to happen? They're going to pop a hamstring. What happens when you all offseason you expose your athletes to closed drills, cone drills, ladder drills? What happens the first time they actually get into their, their practice or their sport and they're under chaos and stress and anxiety and fatigue? What happens? Well, yeah, they tear the ACL. What happens when we try to just continually make our athletes land in these perfect snap-down positions? What happens when they land on one leg with, with 80% of their weight over that leg? What do you think is going to happen? Well, of course, bad things. So sometimes we've got to give our athletes a little dose of that venom to, to build that resiliency and robustness of that tissue and the athlete movement system. So that's kind of where I view it. You know, we talk about the plyometric, but it also comes back to sprinting. It also comes back to the jilly side. They all kind of tie in, at least in my mindset. Yeah, I like too the variability. I feel like just like you said with the weights, like variability in the warmups, just to, you know, just to see the effectiveness, and then go into the main set. And I will say this too: some of the best lifting I've seen, uh, like I've like uh, my tennis team I work with, the, one of the best, some of the best lifting I've seen is after we actually play thirty minutes of basketball. And again, it's not lifting, but then and then it's just doing a minimal warmup and getting after weights. There's just <laughs> that's just how those athletes tick, and that that variability into closed chain war, um, warm up and workout. But I feel like, just like you said for weights, I've seen that in plyometrics, doing variability, open, like doing 360 depth jumps, like where you depth jump and have to do a 360 and land as a warm-up for a regular type depth jump. I've seen that be very effective. So I'd also think that just like the weights, this type of work would also likely be very effective just for a more like a high-powered plyometric, like we're going to do this warm-up and then we're going to do a few sets of like a, a depth jump over a high hurdle or something. I think it would work both ways. and. I just, I just think it's a really great paradigm for overall a better system, a better way to do this. Couldn't agree more. You know, and, and one thing to add, which I know we're all three speaking to, but I think that often is forgotten, is that you, you do want the athlete and athletes to be in a, in a position where they enjoy what they do. Uh, they have fun. 
And part of having fun oftentimes, which expresses itself into good performance, not always, but a lot of times. And so that's that's for me. And when it comes back to the end of the day, I mean, I have guys scaling and, and girls scaling from pro all the way down to, to children. And, and so I, I do want that part of it as well. And I want them to enjoy being there. I want there to be a motivation factor. And so it, it is about um, as a coach still being present, not just allowing anything to occur but at the same time, you know, going in with our, these are kind of the ideas for the day. But then there's oftentimes where, you know, we flip the script and we do something different, uh, specifically when it comes to field work based off what they're, what they're uh, you know, connecting to and picking up on that day. And then um, even within a weight room setting, there's times where, you know, even if I've given them a fair amount of autonomy, uh, we may, we may uh, you know, drop that down or we may uh, provide more variability or less variability depending on the day. But it's being aware, being in, present in that session but uh, taking an appreciation for that individual in their environment. Yeah, I, I yeah, that's awesome stuff. I, I know we're running out of time. I have um, just two very quick things for you guys before we finish up. Um, the first one is I just wanted to summarize one thing after talking, and that's you mentioned like athletes like red light, green light, like how are they feeling coming in on the day? Would would a day where they're not like as good, all systems are not quite as go, so to speak, would that be a more um, low intensity open-ended day versus if more systems are go, they would be a more closed, uh, you could get in a more closed high intensity work. Would that be a general guideline or is it, am I off on that one? Um, yes and no. It obviously depends on kind of what was uh, called for that day. Um, but in general that there is a little bit of a flow in what you're speaking to Joel, that we might, uh, let's say this, we drop five sets. And if you're a red day, you're only doing the first two sets. And those first two sets actually might have a little bit more variability within them. And as you go, if you're a green, you're going on to the third and fourth and fifth set. That is why we might actually reduce some of that variability. So there is an opportunity to do that. And there are some situations where we may do that. Um, but it's not necessarily a black and white answer in that regard. But that's a really good thought process uh, on your part, Joe. Cool. Yeah, no, I completely, I, I agree. That's a great question. And Michael, you know, he hit the nail on the head there. Okay, right on, right on. Yeah, I, I, I've always felt like it's, um, I, I just, again, I just take it back to basketball sometimes. I'm like, yeah, playing pickup made me feel better after us, you know, like sore or, what, or whatnot. Um, I figured something similar would exist in the weight room. Uh, but, but leading into that, I'm sure you guys have a ton of this in your uh, courses. So as the last question, could you guys just tell me a little bit more about how to learn more about what you guys are doing with emergence, uh, your movement training, your courses um, in, in that realm? Yeah, no, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, the company's called Emergence, and it's um, there's five of us here. You know, it's myself, Michael, uh, Sean Mishka, and Jared Sigmund, and uh, Garrett Boyum. And so we we came together. We the name of the the company obviously is Independent Component Parts that are that are coming in together to form a unique whole, pun intended. Uh, you know, as um, as it pertains to you know, human behavior, but taking that lens into into sport movement behavior. And so with us, we created underpinnings, which is our first course. That first course is, is just that, the theoretical concepts that allow for you to, to then know how to fish uh, versus it being, I only have three fish and I do fish A on day one, two, and three, and I, I don't know how to build from there. Um, so rather than being able to have that, you know, that uh, canvas to paint on, uh, and that course is, you know, it's a it's a great course. It comes with a lot of interviews. It comes with year-long movement meetup calls. That way we can actually engage practically, lock arms together, because we're all on a learning journey. And then we have the uh, approaching the weight room from an ecological dynamics perspective, which is essentially, you know, a snapshot of what we've been talking about for the past hour or so. That releases uh, near the new year. And then we have uh, three or four other ones lined up that are getting ready to come out. But uh, we're our handle is at emergent, um, E-M-E-R-G-E-N-T movement or mvmt for short emergent movement uh emergence was taken so we went to emergent movement and uh twitter instagram we do have facebook but we're a lot more active on twitter and instagram and then uh the website's the exact same thing emergentmovement.com uh, and you know from us you know we're all here uh just like everyone else but hopefully providing a platform just like you do uh through this uh, great podcast for for people to engage together to learn and that way we can help more people really and truly and and uh help them get to where they want to be. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time guys today. Uh, I just, I love talking about this stuff. It was really a pleasure talking. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. That does it for 181. I'm signing out. 
All right, so just reiterating what Tyler said as well, if you're interested in this material, Tyler, Michael, and the Emergent Movement crew have a lot of really cool online courses, so you can check out more of what they're up to at the Emergent Movement website. If you enjoyed this show and you've gotten something out of it and it's it's helped your coaching, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Shoot us a rating or review. I would really appreciate it. Also, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They have been a faithful supporters and do amazing work in the sports technology space. Free lap timing system, a system that I love, trust, and use, as well as many other things such as K-Box, Gymware, Force Plates, Contact Grids, Bar Speed Analysis, you name it. They got it in the best categories of sport tech. They've been longtime supporters of this show. They also have a great blog, so be sure to support them and what they are doing. That's it for today. I'll see you guys next week with another great guest.